Meditations with Ryan Smallmack. Today we get to talk about film. Not necessarily film as a storytelling device, though it comes up quite a bit in this conversation, but film as a medium. Film as something to shoot on. Film as... A, uh, a means of communication and a means of production. We're going to be talking with Phil Vigent, who is the owner of Pro 8mm, uh, one of the premier Super 8mm film companies that focuses on film sales, uh, film processing, scanning, uh, and uh, camera rentals and repair. They're based in Los Angeles. He has a fascinating history starting in Massachusetts and then making his way to uh, to L.A. to to sort of set up shop and, and continue. This is a really cool conversation about business. It's an interesting conversation about uh, the backbone of the film industry and uh, is a great entry point for anybody who is interested in shooting their own film. If you're unfamiliar with the Super 8 film medium, medium we get into it a little bit uh, talking about Kodak sort of making a home video format and the way it's been utilized today. Uh, but it's a film format that was used very prominently in the 1980s with uh, advertisements for Nike as well as music videos for MTV. Um, It's used to sort of shoot archival footage um, or things that look like archival footage in modern productions. And it's just a fun, accessible medium. You can go to a thrift store or search on uh, Marketplace or eBay or something for old cameras and still be able to shoot your own film, which is really exciting. So let's hear from the person who uh, is helping to make all this accessible to people. Uh, Without further ado, here is Phil Vigent. So I just want to say uh, greetings from the East Coast. Thanks for joining us from the West Coast. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, and you uh, you actually kicked off your uh, your professional life in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right? You started off on yep. the East Coast. Yep. I'm born and raised in uh, Massachusetts and uh, studied accounting at uh, Bentley College in Waltham, Massachusetts, which is where I got a part-time uh, accounting job at this funky little company in Cambridge called Super 8 Sound, um, which I, you know, would have had no connection with other than it was posted on the board at school as, you know, needing, you know, so many hours of part-time bookkeeping. And so I decided to go down and check it out and take the gig. So that that's really where I started into it. It had no particular interest in film or cinematography or eight, eight millimeter other than the fact my dad had a camera and he always loved it and it was always like a just sort of part of his universe and he's a truck driver and and you know uh he ran a trucking firm and so you know it's a co- sort of creative part of his existence so I, I it was always fun he shot stuff we would play with the projector and things like that but you know just average thing that the average person in that era did you know well that's one thing i'm curious about is so uh you're you're studying accounting in in 1977 what what got you thinking that accounting and business was the the avenue you wanted to take uh at the time i i really was leaning much more towards engineering but then there was kind of a crash in the economy in terms of engineers it seemed like nobody was getting jobs and uh, back then, you know, we were pretty focused on uh, how can I get a better job? And and the college thing was much more, you know, training for the job 
and and picking a college and a career that you know might make decent money you know so that you could uh you could do well so um accounting business you know uh since i came from a self-employed family just seemed like you know the best route for me personally to like make a sustainable living so i kind of pitched the engineering and went for the accounting that's awesome. And just, uh, I, I was unaware that your uh, your dad was a truck driver and, and ran a, a a truck firm. What was like? What were his sort of philosophies or approaches to running his business and running his side of things? Well, he comes from a legacy of about four or five generations in trucking, starting you know horse and buggy um, with my great great grandfather down through my grandfather, and the trucking firm used to be in the backyard of the house. Uh, you know, the house was there and the trucks were, you know, next door in the garage. And th that evolved as a family business over, you know, uh, you know, a lot of decades, um, you know, into, you know, always stayed a small little company. Um, I worked with him, you know, from the time I was a little, little person, you know, I, I went to work with my dad when I was five years old, you know, and, and helped out. And, you know, I got on the payroll, I think probably when I was about eight, you know, <laughs> and just did odd jobs around, you know, a small business. Um, so I sort of had a sense of, uh, you know, what you needed to do to hold something like that together. You know, business talk was like common at the, at the dinner table. And every time I'd jump in the truck with my dad, you know, it'd be like, you know, figuring out of how, you know, they could save money or they could make money or, you know, whether they should expand, you know, the trucks, you know, farther down into Boston or something, you know, or they should make airport runs, you know, so I was really a part of that as a as a young person growing up. So I, I, I had a kind of a feel for it uh, from my dad. That's awesome. I like next time I drive on the 90 through Massachusetts, like, I'm going to be like, these streets are owned by the Vigent family. <laughs> Well, you'll still see family trucks. I think it's called uh, A&P Trucking now, but it used to be called AE Vision and Sons. Interesting. Um, and they still do shipping and logistics and all those kind of yeah. things? Yeah, still do. My cousins wind up taking over the business. And, uh, you know, it's. Uh, I think it's a little smaller than it was when I was growing up, um, but they're all still involved. That's so funny. So going from going from trucking to accounting to 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 Super Eight, uh, you know. So do, doing a little bit of research on this, you end up working for uh, Super Eight Sound, which it started in 1971 in Cambridge, if I understand correctly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you jump on board in in 1977, kind of as just like a, a comfy college job, like as a thing yep. to sort of get your feet wet. What were yep. you What were you doing for Super Eight Sound, and what was the culture of that company like when you when you joined them? Well, they were in the boom time at that point because uh, the whole, you know, concept of using um, their their thing was to create um, out of Super 8 a system that mimicked 35 and 16 millimeter professional photography processes such that you could learn using a cheaper size film gauge so that all the expenses of educating yourself on how to be and how to shoot film uh, would be much less because you were using less film and you could access uh, consumer kind of cameras. You didn't have to buy a 16 millimeter package in order to shoot. So they invented sync audio for Super 8. 
in the style of in that era, you know, regular um, 16 and 35 production. So anything that you would do in 35, you could imitate with the Super 8 sounds uh, sort of system with using Super 8. So they were selling to all the colleges uh, across the country and in uh, other parts of the world. They were really on the boom um, when I I worked there part time. That's awesome. And just uh, I want to I just want to be mindful of listeners who are like, what on earth is the Super Eight thing? So it's you know how do, when you when you sort of describe Super Eight film to somebody and as just like its importance in the in the landscape of film development, how do you do that? Like how do you describe Super Eight to somebody who's never experienced it before? Um, it's sort of it's the smallest sort of multiple of film. So film goes out to 70 millimeters now in terms of size. And this is because it's the smallest version, it's the most economic version. So it it imitates the way film is used in the professional arena, but it's all been microtized so that the average person could experience it. So they could shoot, you know, like a mini system um, the way professionals would use it. So it, it makes motion picture making, you know, accessible to anyone who wants to try it. And that was, you know, the, the kind of the purpose of it, you know, in the market is a, a kind of a, a home system, you know, to create home movies of things rather than just watching professional people's movies. So before everyone had access to that kind of technology, Super 8 was, was it was anybody who wanted to to try you know that this was the best avenue to go and when it came out it if i understand it, like it it hit the market via kodak in 1965 and became like the uh i don't know not only the sort of home video format before video uh but also something that had that versatility where like young filmmakers could figure out how to make narrative films or documentaries or things like that um in regards to the Super 8 sound when you were working for them and as they had figured out synchronization, just so I'm I'm getting it, it's film and sound are still two separate entities. It's not a system where it's printing sound onto the uh, onto the film. It's something where you could coordinate it with another device and then right. uh, make sure that you could synchronize them later like you would with a 35 production. Yeah, correct. Initially, there was no way of, uh, you know, putting sound and film on the same medium. So coming up into this from, you know, and, and Super 8 actually stems off of 8 millimeter, which was, um, had many more, um, you know, independent people kind of trying to make films with 8 millimeter. And there was a whole culture, uh, sort of a subculture of filmmaking, you know, kind of going on in the regular 8. And Super 8 sort of supercharged the whole thing. And in Kodak, what they did really was they took something that was happening and it was growing and they 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 jump started it, you know, with a, a, a more sophisticated system, uh, an easier way to use it so that they they expanded the market potential so that everybody, you know, once, you know, that that product took off and everybody had one. I think it was probably one of the most successful consumer um, kind of tools, you know, in that era. I think I, I had read one time one in six families had a Super 8 camera. So it, it took it from a handful of people who kind of wanted to make their own films and were mucking around with it and uh, to like everyone has to have this thing, you know, in order to like 
you know, being American, you know? Yeah. And they're, uh, and I'm just trying to paint the picture a little bit more, but with, with regular eight film, which I think came out in the 1930s, you've got a 16 millimeter roll that you have to keep in the dark and you film it and it's kind of hard to handle. And then you have to go in the dark and flip it the other way to be able to get all your film. And then it has to go through a specific processing system and be cut in half. And like basically super eight is uh, you can go to Sears and you can buy the camera because every store is selling them and then you can get your cartridge you just pop it in it's all self-contained as soon as it's done, you have your three minutes of film done at 18 frames yep. per second you get it developed at your local store and then boom you've got home videos where it was uh the the technical necessities uh the skills that you would need uh seem to really uh be removed from the process so it was accessible yes. to anybody yeah, so that's really what Kodak did. You know, the uh, improvement in the images is uh, is is something, but it's not really that radical. It's really the system with which someone can use it, and they created a system where literally anyone can use the camera with and and successfully capture a picture. So that that changed the face of it and made it yeah, enormously popular. It's awesome. And so you're working, you're working for Super 8 Sound in 1977. And then if I understand correctly, like 1979 is about the point at which the bottom falls out of that market video starts to enter. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and we talked a little bit of sound. One of the, one of the moves uh, towards, you know, projecting this thing out even further for Kodak was to create a system where sound was recorded on the film. So they actually laminated an audio track on the side of the film and they came out with a Super 8 sound sort of system around 75. I think that's probably about the, the era. So that that pushed it even further out into the world. But uh, video had started to leach in to the world that we, you know, embraced and it was gaining some ground. It, it, it had won some battles um in in professional sectors and in various you know because this is spread over a bunch of different markets you know these things are all happening together but they're all in different places and 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 it holds out longer in certain places based on you know some of the qualities that you're you're talking about but uh vi home video cameras were, were pushing the envelope into that world they were they were going from humongous things that you had to port on your shoulder to tiny you know, kind of cameras. And when they came out with eight millimeter video, um, they really condensed the whole process of video to make it um, much more palatable for the average person. And when you combine the no cost aspect of the tape and the fact that you could buy pre-recorded movies and play them at home, all of a sudden it, it, it just hit a certain point and people went, um, I, w I went to the store to buy a new Super 8 camera and I came home with a digital video camera, you know, like, and it just literally overnight went and dropped. I think they said 90% of their sales dropped in one year, you know, in terms of Super 8. So like, it, it didn't crash over like years. It crashed like one day, you know, like within a year's time, it went from the most popular thing you could have to something that nobody wanted are you secretly a fireman because you decided to run back into that phil <laughs> yeah well um and and exactly it it was um 
it was a great experience for me when I worked there. I loved it. It was, um, you know, accounting can be kind of dry, you know, and, and I was going for auditing and being a CPA, which means basically you go down to companies and everybody sort of hates the fact that you're there because you're there to um, sort of, you know, tattletale on any, you know, errors they're making and, and you're going through their secret fire, their books, you know, they're, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a different kind of job than the job I had at Super 8 Sam, which was um, creative, intelligent people coming in with with crazy ideas about the world that they wanted to document and flying in from the Philippines because they're going to, you know, set up a whole national film program in the Philippines with this system. And, you know, so you, you I, I left my job at Super 8 Sam, you know, because it was my part-time little college job and I went off and got a real big boy job and then I I was there for a couple of years and I was like god this is boring and I loved like what life was like back in college when I was at Super 8 Sound and all this interesting stuff was happening every day you know people were coming and it's like god I can't believe this so it, it just so happened that a person that I work with at Super 8 Sound wound up kind of taking over the company and they were in financial problems because obviously the market had crashed. And uh, when that happens, you know, companies, you know, uh, go through terrible change. And she remembered that I seemed to know something about accounting and called me up to come over and see if I could help in some way. And so I went back for like a visit and I was, you know, try to give them a little advice on what they, you know, and I had just graduated with a degree. And uh, so there were some things that, you know, you can do, you know, you can file bankruptcy and um, this way you can relieve some of the debt and still stay in business. So I wound up helping them file bankruptcy as a company um, with my college professor. And, you know, so, you know, the, the things I had learned in college while maintaining my real job, but then slowly just got sort of sucked into the vortex of the whole thing and, and started spending more time down at Super 8 Sound helping out and less time on my job. And finally, I, I just decided to take the plunge and, and give up the accounting career and full time go back and try to rescue Super 8 Sound from from death. What was the uh, what was the sort of moment at which you you made the decision to purchase the company? You bought it in 1982, uh, so there's about a three year span of the company just like limping along. Like, what was yep. the spark that made you feel like this would be profitable and a good <laughs> challenge for you? Um, it was a it was a meeting, actually, at the bank of uh, Harvard Community, you know, one of the banks in Cambridge. And it was um, the guys who owned the company and the bank. The bank had lent them a bunch of money, and it was like, "Look, we gotta, we gotta decide what to do with this thing." You know, you know. So they they brought in the original founder who had borrowed the money. The bankers had their lawyers, and they, you know, asked me to come because I was the guy on the, you know, doing the actual thing. You know, I, I'm trying to like run it for this guy and help this guy and all this stuff. And so we had this big meeting and they're like, well, we need to just close this thing out, get rid of it, 
you know, end the whole thing and, and walk away. And I said, you know, just in a moment of like sort of excitement of the, you know, like when you're at the last stitch is like, well, if you're just going to close it and stuff, can I have it? And, and, you know, could you just like give it to me? And then you guys all go away. You know, the, the bank loan would go away. The owner would go away. Everything would go, but I'd still, this company would still be there and I would be able to like run it. And they were like, um, give us a minute. So they sent me out in the hall and, uh, they came back like 20 minutes later. They're like, okay, you can have it. It's yours. Free. It's a good price. Take it over. Like it's, it's not worth anything. It's just sucking up air. It's just creating more debt. It's like, um, if you want it, you can go do it. So I like, cool. I just got myself a company. What about that challenge really just excited you? Was it the idea of owning a company? Was it the fact that you knew that there was a collaborative component? Was it the engineering idea that you had this medium you needed to figure out? Like, what about it really called to you? Um, I think the 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 idea that I could do it my way, you know, because I had a bunch of ideas being there for like the three years, you know, but most of that was answering to somebody else's desire to do it their way and to try to, you know, make that happen, you know, and, and I was like, eh, I don't know if this is the best way, you know, and they would do stuff and I would be like, eh, I don't know if I would do that, but they wanted to do it that way. And like I say, I came from, you know, self-employed trucking, you know, where you make every penny count, you, you do things completely strategically. You like, you know, in order to make a buck in trucking, which is highly competitive, you, you've got to be good. And these guys, you know, they had a great idea. And so they, they were, they were mountains of money was pouring in at one time, you know, and they, but they didn't really have to be that strategic or, or that cost conscious or that, you know, they didn't have to fight for every penny. So they didn't have that kind of appetite for that kind of stuff. So once I got rid of them, then I could run the thing like that, you know, where things cost money, you charge money for them. You, you know, you, you, you made an equitable kind of thing out of it. And it wasn't quite so much, you know, of a, of a playground anymore, but you know, it, it sustained itself then. What were some of the, um, I, I just, one of the things I really admire you about just a business owner is that like, even before we started talking, you were already referencing your sort of reflective nature, uh, you know, like, okay, cool. So the new year is coming and I'm going to be thinking about what worked, what didn't work, where should we change the business? But as soon as you got in there, like, what were some of the the changes that you implemented right from the get-go and what was the bulk of your business in, you know, at this point in 1982? Um. Well, most of the schools had gotten out of it. And actually, very fortunately for me, literally the next week after everyone left and I was out of their control, there was a uh, a sale we had kind of looming for almost two years uh, in China for uh, a school in Hong Kong. So it was the... Uh, Hong Kong Film Academy or something like that. And they wanted to buy, like, I think it was four systems of it, you know, and the, each system was everything that we sold times four. So it was a sale 
like at the time that was about equal to six months of our normal sales. And so right at that moment, I get the letter of credit from the government saying, here's your order. All you have to do is deliver this thing and you'll get this check for $32,000. And I was like, yeah, I can do this. I can do this. So we spent day and night um, like cobbing together pieces and parts and like, you know, you know, and we were able to build four systems and ship them and then collect on the uh, on that sale that really that that covered us for the first six months. So it it it, it was sort of the last of that stuff because we. You know, those were systems where they had independent tape recorders with cameras. It was the old Super 8 sound systems. And that, that had been dropping off, you know, all those years, you know, the three years, like less and less every year. And I could see that that wasn't going to sustain. We had to find a new place to play. Um, and it wasn't in sound recorders selling them to schools. Um, so... Once we got the cash flow from that one last sale and basically cleaned out all the inventory we had, uh, we could concentrate on the new stuff that was coming out, which was uh, music videos. Yeah. So and, there's this there's this huge boom, you know, courtesy of a, a little institution called MTV. Right. You've got this right. like all of a sudden music videos become popular and the aesthetic of Super 8 becomes really hot. Right. Like you've got. Right. Paula Ab is it if if I'm correct, Paula Abdul's music video for Straight Up yep, is like Straight Up. Yeah, directed by David Fincher, known for, you know, Gone Girl and House of Cards and all those, uh, directs that music video. It's like the first music video that's shot entirely with Super 8. Yep, big time stuff started to happen. But preceding that, there was a whole wave of you have to remember you've got a bunch of musicians who aren't used to seeing themselves and they need creative people to make some creative thing with their music and you have all these people that are going to film school who are all trying to get jobs as directors and there's only like 10 jobs for directors and and somehow they're graduating a half a million kids every year you know to be directors so it's 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 a terrible inequity so you have a huge army of people who learned about filmmaking many with the super 8 sound system in film school who are looking for something to do. And then you've got all these musicians who need something done. And so the two just naturally met together. And when the musician came to the film and said, well, what do we do it on? Well, we do it on Super 8 because that's what they were learning in film school and all this kind of, right? So, so it made this giant welding up of like people, um, you know, by the thousands creating music videos for everybody and then as that started to to rise up then really you know um you know hollywood people and people with you know huge names in music started making their video and started seeing you know that energy and pulling the best out of that that mushroom cloud of of, of uh, creativity and applying it to their stuff so you, then you had, you know, then the then the whole public found out, you know, that this was the way to do it. 
And you, so this this whole thing is happening, and obviously there's a big boom in business, and you're you're realigning. The thing I'm curious about is you're you just have this inherent like collaborative spirit. Like how what was your role like in all of these interactions? Are you are you teaching people or reteaching people how to shoot on these things? Like where what are you within the supply chain of this uh, this revolution of music videos? Well, you, you, you've got. The first guy comes in and he's like, hey, I'm going to do this thing. And, and you're like, oh, OK, well, what are you looking for? I, I need this camera and I need to do this. OK, and we need to get that process. OK, uh, we can do that over here. And and so, you know, I'm going to task for him trying to figure out how to put the elements needed for filmmaking together to make it all work and then scheduling. And, you know, it's got to get done fast. And OK, so. Once you've done it for the first guy, then the next guy walks in, you're like going, oh, you want to do that? You go here, you go there, you go do this, nigga, this. And so it's really, um, you know, it's somebody else's idea. It's not my idea, but I'm in a position where I'm working with you and now you've taught me what you needed and I can apply that to somebody else. And then that somebody else gets to ride in on the fact that we already figured out where the best place to process black and white film is. And, you know, there's no, you know, no investigation needed for that part of it. We can go to the next level and we can, we can take it a little further. And so as you, you start to piece these things together, you start realizing, Oh, everyone has to transfer film to video. Okay. So we're all using these and I had invented them to these projectors that have, you know, a, a special shutter and a screen and you point a video camera at it. And it's like in motion pictures in Hollywood, they had already left that, you know, deck couple decades ago and started using a very sophisticated machine that you put the film on and it's all designed so that you can control it and you can change things as you transfer it. And, you know, they're 20 years ahead of this whole kind of technical curve. So I'm like, well, we got all these films we got to transfer. We need to talk to those guys with the professional machines and we got to get them to get the thing that makes Super 8 work on that machine. So in this the scanner, it's called a rank. Um, the company actually made a Super 8 module to transfer Super 8 on their professional machine, but they didn't, you know, they wanted like 30 grand for it and no one company would be, you know, saw the economics of, of having a $30,000 accessory for this machine to do the occasional maybe Super 8 job. So at first we talked them into renting it. So we said, hey, why don't you have one in LA and you can rent it to companies who want to do professional transfers. So we'd go and we'd rent it for the day and then we do our transfers. And all of a sudden now you can take Super 8 off the hokey, you know, projected on the wall system. So you can put it in the regular professional systems. Wow. That that like blew people's minds, you know, that and then of course the quality of the Super 8 now done on a real machine was like everyone's like, oh my, that's Super 8. How can that possibly be? I Super 8 in my head is what that that looks like in my living room on my little eight inch screen that I project on with, you know, the lights flickering and, you know, like that can't be super eight. It can't be like that good. 
but it, you know, it is, it just wasn't handled professionally. So we were able to build those kind of bridges and that particular one with renting the gate that took a lot of meetings and, and convincing these guys that this is a good idea. And, you know, you know, caging somebody in a, in a trade show and say, Hey, did you ever think about, you know, like renting this thing out, you know, Oh, nobody will rent it. Oh, wait a minute. Let me, let you talk to this guy from, from this group. Okay. And he come, you know, so my role in it is like, is trying to put those things together, trying to piece together what the guys know that they want, but aren't really economically capable of putting them together because they're just looking at their one film job and they're not looking at, oh, there's 10,000 people shooting this thing. <laughs> what if all 10,000 wanted to use it? Now it's worth it. Did you, and is that when you started to take uh, like archiving in house as opposed to, you know, using other facilities for that? Or like, I guess I'm curious, like at this time where you, you were selling film. Yeah. Uh, and, but like, and you obviously you'd moved to LA. I missed that part in the chronology. Uh, but yeah. it, it, well, it the, yeah, the MTV thing went so well from Boston that, that we, we were renting cameras and shipping film and processing into LA daily. And so we'd have 10 cameras like leaving Boston, going to LA, you know, every week and getting them back to Boston. And like, you know, so it, it it's like, well, if you're, if you're going to send all this stuff there and then bring it all back, it's like, what makes sense is like to go there where it's all kind of happening. And then you, they could just pick it up and they could process it right there. So it, it just seemed pretty logical. So he came out, tried to get people interested out here. They weren't, and then we we're like, yeah, we could try to do it ourselves. You know, that that would be moving. So, you know, eventually we realized, yeah, that could work. You know, we could move there and this would cut out all that shipping. And, you know, we'd be right there with all the people who are doing all the work. That's awesome. What was the, uh, I guess, you, you know, like that, that was a big boom. It obviously brought in, you brought you guys a lot of business. You were able to invest in all of these other components that had to be outsourced. Um, right. What was the, like, what was the, what helped you after that, that movement? Like what, what kept uh, your company afloat after the, the music video wave started to die down a little bit? Um, well, we, <laughs> we, we had a, in around 91, there was a real big recession in the United States, right around the Gulf War. And the music video thing, like you say, was kind of curtailing its sort of thing. We had had some other stuff. Music videos led to some commercials, but it wasn't like music video. And we were doing a lot of, um, starting to do some documentary stuff because there was a lot more documentary, documentary recreates you know started and stuff but nothing was really not like music videos so at that time of the recession kodak started to peel back some of its offerings they started discontinuing a lot of film stocks and one thing they were going to discontinue was ectochrome film which was one of the main things we were using you know using kodachrome and ectochrome kodachrome for its qualities and ectochrome because we could process it in-house deliver it fast so a lot of jobs couldn't tolerate the the cycle time of getting kodachrome process so we had they had to shoot them on extra schools and stuff like that so kodak's like oh we're gonna get rid of this we're like ah you know like <laughs> our lives I, are gonna be 
Yeah, and if I can just interject real quick, Phil, just for for those who are unfamiliar with the terms, Kodachrome and Ektachrome uh, are sort of the two most popular, uh, at least at the time, like at color, time, yeah. color, and they were both reversal films, which means that you would get the film processed, and then instead of getting a negative, you would be able to instantly project that yeah, film, project it, right. you know, on your projector or or get it transferred or whatever. And Kodachrome, uh, notoriously, uh, one of the most beautiful film stocks in history. I still right. miss it today. Uh, had very had very specific places that could process it, and it was a it was a multi stage process that took a very long time. Whereas Ektachrome, if I understand, was able to get processed much more quickly uh, and just had a different sort of color. Uh, palette that you'd be able to get. So the idea of Kodak getting rid of Ektachrome meant that the only color stock would be extremely inefficient to get processed quickly. Is that right. does that sound right, Phil? Yep. And low ASA, so it's forty ASA. So you can only shoot it when you got a lot of light. So you got you got you'd have only something that you could do outside, and it would take a week or so to get it back. So when you're trying to pitch a commercial or even a music video, and you're telling them well, you can't look at this thing for a week. It's tough, you know, to 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 tolerate for a professional kind of application. You know, amateurs can can deal with that, but you know, uh, when you're when you got a job and you got to wrap everything up and you're gonna have to wait a week to see if it came out, that that doesn't fly very well in production. So if Kodak pulled the the plug on the Ektachrome, it really would have put us in kind of a bad place. So we started thinking, yeah, maybe we could make the film ourselves. And so we we had had this equipment that we were making the Super 8 sound tape with that took 35 millimeter sound recording tape and punched the Super 8 holes in it and slid it so that we could use it as the recording tape in the Super 8 sound era. So we're thinking, well, if we took that and we put it in the dark, we could take 35 millimeter film and punch and slit and have our own Super 8 film. But then we'd have to put it in a cartridge. And we didn't have, you know, we asked Kodak for these. They, would, they were not interested. So this uh, student showed up at my office in Boston from Lithuania with a Russian reloadable Super 8 cartridge. Because in Russia, they do it, or they did it, with a system where they'd ship you a spool of film and you'd have to load it in the cartridge yourself and then shoot it but we we're like well if we had these reloadable cartridges we and we could punch our own film we could put ectochrome film in our own cartridges and do it so we we set that all up and as we got going into it we're like oh maybe we should do something even better than ectochrome because in professional filmmaking everyone had migrated to shooting on color negative and what color negative has going for it, it has not only the exposure range, which we got from the ectochrome, but it has has latitude in the images. So you didn't have to be as precise about the photography. You could get a great picture and not have the most perfect lighting uh, because the film absorbs much more range than the reversal films did. And not only would we get that, but it also processes, like you said, relatively easily compared to Kodachrome. So we could process it ourselves right away. So we would have something more flexible than Ektachrome. We could process it ourselves. And basically it, it had become the standard of all 
professional motion picture filmmaking was to shoot it on color negative. We never had color negative in Super 8, so we couldn't use what was the norm. Uh, so when we integrated Super 8 into productions, oftentimes we had to like keep reminding the people using it that, that you couldn't do the same things as they were doing with their 16 and 35 stock because it was reversal film. And they had to remind them that it had low latitude and, you know, you, you had to constantly be making excuses for why the Super 8 wouldn't work. And if we had negative, we just say, oh, you shooting on 50D, then shoot 50D in Super 8. You just would all line up. So we're like, oh, this could really be good. So uh, we set to task at actually making Super 8 color negative. And we took those Russian cartridges and we loaded some film and we took the Ektachrome machine, which was now not being needed. And we made it into a color negative machine and we started doing Super 8 color negative. That's amazing. And I guess I had never thought about the idea that, um, you know, as if you're thinking about like a major film production and the idea that you need to be, you know, we want to shoot on different films for different grains and things like that, uh, or sorry, film formats for different grains. And then all of a sudden you're like, all right, we can do this on 35. We can do this on 16 and you get to super eight. And it's like, you're in this desolate landscape of what films you can choose. If you yeah. aren't shooting the same film grain, or the same film type, it it's something that really has to be creatively processed for a director to say, okay, well, the viewer will accept this alteration in color or look. Whereas if you're all of a sudden using, you're repurposing this 35 millimeter film stock, all of a sudden a director or, or whomever can just uh, shoot that on Super 8 and the looks, despite the fact that the grain and the resolution changes, right. the actual characteristics of the film remains the same. Right. And it's the lighting. I mean, you're as a DP, you're lighting the thing for the film stock that you're shooting. And when they're using negative and you've got seven or eight stops of latitude and you try to expose a roll of Kodachrome in that circumstance, it doesn't come out right at all. It, it has to all be relit properly. You know, if, if the cinematographer really wanted to make something look good in Super 8, you'd have to relight the whole set to make the Kodachrome look good because it's not designed with the right contrast, you know, key to fills and all that stuff, you know, for that kind of film stock. So it comes out looking crappy. Um, but like you say, when you have the same stock and then other things we, we realized only after we started doing it, things like education, like say I had a DP shooting a major uh, television series, uh, the approach from Kodak, with a new stock, but they didn't want to invest the kind of money it took to shoot a bunch of tests in 35 millimeter of whether vision stock would look better than the other stock that they were using at the time. So the DP just got some vision in Super 8 and made a little test on the set between the old EXR stock and the vision stock. And we put the two up in Super 8 and it was so day and night in terms of how much improvement Kodak had made in the vision stock over the EXR film, he was like, they switched the next day. So, you know, being able to be enlightened in that way, because you have access to what it's really going to come out like in Super 8 became a really nice thing for cinematographers or, you know, people who, you know, had to make those kind of decisions. So we got other benefits out of it as well as we kept going. And we were going from 
Ectochrome at 160 ASA to 500T color negative, which essentially means even though it's a stop and a half really between 160 and 500 of the stock, because the stock has latitude, it can take a picture about four or five stops deeper into darker situations. So now you can shoot in places you never even imagined you could shoot in Super 8 because with a 500T stock, you could go down four or five stocks, stops from where you used to be. So now you can take pictures all kinds of places where, where regular Super 8, you, you could never shoot in those environments. You, you had to, you were confined to certain things. So that, that opened things up a lot. Yeah. So all of a sudden, if you want to do a night shoot, if you want to do something where you've got uh, limited lighting and you can you can rely on shadows more or something like that, you're able to yep. do it with this negative stock and you never could have before. Right. Right. So it, it, it really did kind of open up the medium tremendously. Now, it took took a few years to kind of work out the kinks because it wasn't, you know, initially designed that way. And we went through some you know, some huge things like the Russian cartridges, um, even though they were designed to be reused, they, they didn't reuse that well um, because th there's a little spring in there and the spring seems to wear down a little bit. And so after you used them a couple of times, you know, you'd start to have technical problems with the cartridges and the precision with which those cartridges were made were nowhere near um, the precise nature of the Kodak cartridge. So eventually we did approach Kodak and we had a, a really good Kodak rep at the time and she made a case uh, for us and uh, they allowed us to use their cartridge uh, to load the color negative film. So that that improved our technical sort of aspect of the whole thing dramatically. Um, so we you know there was a lot of things that had to happen to like perfect it um and that took you know three four years of like like working on it but because it was so flexible so capable so new to people to be able to do things with this thing that it, it you know that creative part carried it you know through all kinds of stuff and and great music videos like uh mozzie stars fading to you you know it's like done on 500t you know like it's, uh, you know, uh, we got some great projects, you know, that 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 came out of it. That's amazing. And the other thing that it did uh, is that it also uh, involved you changing the name of your company, right? Yeah. Was... Yeah. We figured the sound thing, it kind of, you know, we weren't really associated with that anymore. And um, we really wanted to. We call the film Pro 8 film actually for a for a practical reason. We had a lot of schools still buying our film and some schools were still projecting the film. And we didn't want people to confuse the fact that this film was negative and, and it couldn't be projected because you have to take a negative film and you have to create a positive out of it somehow, which is done in the transfer process. But not all film was, was transferred at that time. And some people were still projecting. And we would get into all kinds of trouble with the schools that we supported. If students just called up, oh, I want some film, we sold them our film, and then they couldn't project it. So we renamed it instead of Super 8 film, we called it Pro 8 film, so that 
they would they would say, oh, oh, okay, it's pro eight film. It's different somehow from super eight film. I don't know how, but I think I'll ask. And then most of the time, someone would ask, and you're like, oh, you can't project it. Oh, oh, okay, I get it now, right? Because the the power of it, you know, when they call, they're like, oh, I'm going to shoot this party in this, you know, cellar. You know, like, well, you want 500T. But then, you know, we wouldn't always know to ask, well, are you projecting this? So by changing the name, we, we, we kind of put a question mark in people's heads when they bought it to figure out what Pro 8 meant rather than just Super 8 so that they wouldn't make the mistake of like, buying a bunch of film and then realizing, oh, I can't project this film. And then you get into that whole problem. Well, it also, it also uh, levels up the language that you're using. So when people have to make yeah. the sales pitch of, you know, oh, I want to shoot the sequence in Super 8 for this Nike commercial or whatever, uh, you know, you can be like, well, th this is actually pro 8 millimeter film. This is the professional right. version. Right, right. So, and then they like, oh, what does that mean? And then you would be like, and, and some of that nuance ma matters to people because if they're trying to get an exact simulation of like what it was like they want that Kodachrome look they're really better off shooting in Kodachrome or you know an ectochrome to kind of get that if it, they want it to look exactly like that it's supposed to be a perfect period match um and, and initially that was much more they were much more sensitive to that but now as we're like way past you know people understanding that stuff in the digital era they, they don't know the difference. So if the sprocket holes show up black, you know, because, you know, when you transfer a piece of negative film, the sprocket hole is going to be black rather than white because it's reversed. They don't they don't seem to um, be bothered by that anymore. You know, where in the old days, it was like, oh, what's wrong with that? Something something's off. It doesn't have a white sprocket or, you know, so today it's film, you know, that minutia is, is lost on on people and they they accept super eight negative film now as the norm of recreated super eight or you know and that's a big part of the market for it today is is oh i want something to look like old old film we'll do it in super eight and you know for a long time professional people wouldn't wouldn't move past 16 millimeter they needed you know that 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 level of of uh confidence in the film medium but today with most people doing digital super 8 can substitute for 16 millimeter um just as easily as shooting it on 16 millimeters so anytime the idea of oh it's going to be recreated looking footage um super 8's like number one on the choice list you know for people to use that's amazing. I wanna um I wanna come back to the 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 sort of modern era and the the professional stuff that you're working with because it's really interesting. But I want to go take a step back because you talk about a lot in your book. But uh, the archiving of of Super 8 films is at a I, I don't know how much of a part of your business it is, but it's been a very important part of your tale. Uh, yeah. And uh, you know, in your book, you talk about just having the privilege of all of these filmmakers, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg, Sam Raimi, J.J. Uh, Abrams, whomever, who started off making Super 8 films and being the person who is entrusted to transfer those to a, an archival medium, in this case, a, you know, a digital file that allows them to ha have that in the future. 
And I'm just curious, like about, you know, obviously in the music video era, you have to start converting everything to video because it's going to end up being televised or whatever later on. Um, but when did that start? Like, when did you start to get recognized by filmmakers as the, the person to go to to get these transfers done? Well, I after we, you know, talk the rank guys into renting that gate for their scanner, eventually we realized the, that we had enough so that we could get the scanner ourselves and we could buy a scanner and we could dedicate it to eight millimeter rather than uh, when you rented the gate for the, for the super eight component and you were primarily a 16 or 35 millimeter shop, you had to kind of customize your machine a little bit to accommodate the little quirks and problems of eight millimeter film because it's small and the way it's uh, spliced together and, you know, everything has its own kind of nuances to it. And so if you're doing 16 all day long and all week long and you come and you have to do this super eight job, it, it's 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 almost like what you're doing, but it's not all like what you're doing. You're not you're not used to the the nuance of it, you know, so you take super eight to a major facility and that splice would break. And, you know, you know, you're paying $500 an hour to use this room and, you know, nothing's happening for like, you know, 20 minutes. Get the courage up to go in the back room, find out what's going on. There's eight guys sitting around trying to make a splice in a space of Super 8 film because they just don't, they're just not proficient with it. They, they, it's, it isn't quite the same and they don't have the tools and they, you know, like they, they, they could do the scanning for it, but they didn't have the backup you know, to deal with the medium as a unique medium. So we decided to buy one of the scanners ourselves, start doing the scanning ourselves. And then once we had it, then we really customized it so that it would be the ultimate Super 8 scanner. We want the Super 8 thing to be like the best Super 8 it could be. So that meant changing tensions in the machines and, and doing things that would make it customized for Super 8 rather than a 16 or 35 machine that you just used occasionally for Super 8. So um, as clients started showing up like Spielberg, who, you know, like wanted to see what the best could do um, and then pushing you forward, you know, the, the one aspect of those kind of clients are they're, they have a higher sense of taste of these things. And so they, they like, Hey, couldn't you do this? Or what would it cost to do that? And with normal customers, it's usually, oh my God, that's way too expensive. I don't want to spend that on this. But with those kind of customers, it's like, oh, they have a, you know, the resources so that if it can get a little better, they're interested in that. And so it, it pushes you to buy, you know, $40,000 accessories that just do stabilization in the picture. It's like, like $40,000 piece of thing that that just makes the picture a little bit more stable it seems unreasonable but for that kind of client some of those things and exploring the technology is much more what they're doing with it you know they, they want to see what what what's what's there in the state of the art so they're pushing you to like come up with it you know we had the first hd scanning of super 8 film you know like we're the first ones who could do that and People are like, my God, what's it going to look like in HD? Like, what's, 
what's film resolution going to be like in HD? So yes, it's their home movies, but also they're like all filmmakers. They're using all these experiences in their, in their process. So maybe they're learning something about, you know, and, and a lot of them were learning about modern scan technology, you know, because they, it hadn't come to it for them yet. They're still working in film. They're still, Right. And so they, they take their home movies, they scan it at the best place. They start to see how there's relationships between, you know, the resolutions of standard def and high def and, uh, you know, uh, the different file types. And so they use that learning in their process and they probably, you know, then go back and start thinking, well, maybe we're not going to cut on film. We're going to, you know, we're going to scan it and post it digital. You know, it, it moves their process as well. So once you're identified as having the, the, the most cutting edge kind of thing, then, then these people seek you out and, and it's a, uh, it's a great part of the experience to be able to like, like be in those shoes to be, you know, I call top dog, you know, like the, the guy who's got the, the, the top kind of thing to do this kind of thing. And, and they want to see, you know, how it can work on their stuff. And that, that stretches from filmmakers to like, I mean, I remember doing L. Ron Hubbard's, you know, like home movies and, you know, like all these kind of, right. And, and um, they're all very serious about their, their images and you're able to seriously pursue it with them. It's yeah. It's, and it's interesting just in the sense that like in your, in your book, it also gave you this like, really interesting insight into the growth of these different filmmakers too like one of my favorite quotes is just no one starts out great yeah <laughs> and you know what no matter whom you're uh whom you're transferring you're you're seeing like i think i've heard you say quotes along the lines of if you were to take all these amazing filmmakers that were were used to that are making billions of dollars at the box office and you put their super eight films in line with just an average uh you know film school student you can't really typically pick out who is going to be successful and great in the long term you cannot not at all it's, it's kind of crazy that way right absolutely it's a great insight to see that development and to experience it you know if you do their archive you get it from start to finish so you start with their first projects and then they progress chronologically as you're scanning them and then you 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 start to see where things are starting to happen where their mind um is starting to connect with what's going on in the pictures such that it's powerful in its imagery and it's like oh it's clear they didn't get it with this the, the first movie but this fourth movie yeah parts of this movie you're really starting to suspend your disbelief you know when you're when your mind jumps into the picture and it's like there right rather than you're just watching it you know it's like wow he's got me there now i remember doing sam raimi's uh in the woods within the woods within the woods within the woods like wow that that was probably the greatest super eight film i've ever seen yeah just scared the pants off of us <laughs> yeah and what did you it was uh it, i was actually just reading about it yesterday, but uh, what did you say? It was like 10 years of films that you transferred. You did it over the course of three days and you just like took it all in. And by the time you got to within the woods, you're like, this is legitimately scary. Yeah. Yeah. This guy's got it. You know, he's going, he's going places. 
That's amazing. Were there, did you have other experiences like that with other filmmakers or had most of them kind of moved on to other mediums by the time that they started to get better? I'm trying to think of like Steven Soderbergh's films. Um, Yeah, it Spielberg's films. um, You know, they're they're good films, you know. Um, But yeah, I think they they mostly had moved on to other mediums by the time, you know, there's a greater gap between their their super eight films and their their big time budget films. Although strangely, Spielberg's some of Spielberg's most famous films are really remakes of films that he had already made before. Like he obviously loved the ideas um in like Saving Private Ryan and uh, E.T. and that he has super eight films, or they're eight millimeter films actually that are, are very similar in nature to those films and um, Close Encounters, I'm sorry. And you can see the elements of them in the, in the big budget. And it's almost as if he took those ideas that he, he only had the economic whereabouts to make them so grand at that scale of eight millimeter. And he just went crazy and, and made them, you know, big epic kinds of versions of the same thing. I love the, I love the, I firmly believe that the, the themes and the things we're passionate about when we're young follow us, whether or not we want them to. And yeah. it's, it's really, it's, I mean, just with you sort of with that engineering financial mindset that you're constantly applying to super eight Spielberg's, you know, looking at these different themes of, uh, you know, where, where we are in the universe or how we connect with the greater universe yeah. or, you know, what it means to, uh, to, to be with people in, in times of turmoil, like follow him, uh, you know, yeah. 40 years later, which is pretty neat. Um, and speaking of which, we're now in this era of of pro eight millimeter and super eight millimeter where uh, it's, it, I won't say that it necessarily lost its, its, its qualities because, or it lost its popularity because one of the things just as film viewers is that oftentimes we'll watch movies with super eight segments and never even acknowledge that they're super eight segments. Um, exactly. Yeah, that was a there was a a huge boom in our our marketing really happened recently when the uh, the concept of using the sprocket hole and the frame in the in the final uh, started to gain popularity and initially that that had nothing to do with that it, it when the technology of stabilization digitally started coming in. Filmmakers were asking us to overscan the image so that they could see the sprocket, so that they could use the stabilization software to use the sprocket to stabilize the picture. And so we're in this whole like technical kind of round of like, we can improve the look of the film by stabilizing the picture. But to do that, we have to overscan the image in order to do the stabilization. And then somewhere along the way, one person, many people, I don't know what happened, but someone decided they were going to use the sprocket holes in the picture as the end footage. They never framed it up. They they used the sprocket and the frame line and stuff in the actual product. And I don't know, the first time I saw it, I thought, oh, this looks stupid. You know, this, this is just, you know, uh, it, it looks crappy. You got the jaggedy edge of the frame and you got this sprocket blinking at you and i was like this this doesn't make any sense and i'm like why are you doing it and but 
one person after another started doing it that way. And and before you know it, it caught on as a like a as a pop fad culture thing that you see the sprocket hole with the picture. And the consequence of that in our marketing was all of a sudden where, like you say, people didn't identify with the fact they were looking at Super 8. There it was. The evidence is like it was signed, like a signed photograph now that this is actually Super 8 you're looking at. And even myself, sometimes I, I'll see a frame or a shot, um, you know, like in that winning times program that, that recently came up. So, you know, I'm watching this like that's Super 8. Uh, that's, you know, and trying to figure it out. And then it, without that sprocket reference, sometimes they can fool you. And and even they went so far as to do um, sync sound scenes, which you like never see, right? Super 8 done with sync sounds. So they've got a whole dialogue sequence going on in a major television, multi-million dollar production. And you see the sprocket holes come out. You're like, oh, that whole thing was just done in Super 8. No one would ever ever imagine that that something like that would be could be has been done you know in that kind of screen site so the, the sprocket hole reference has become like a major promo scheme for us uh because people now know when they see it they're like oh that's super eight and fortunately for us they often go oh yeah that probably came from pro eight millimeters so it, like we get a double wham out of every time that sprocket shows up even if we didn't do it it's super cool. And like, uh, you know, I was thinking I was just kind of referencing filmmakers like Scott Derrickson, who did like Sinister and uh, the Black Phone were like, super, you know, Super 8 is literally a prominent part of a plot line in Sinister. And then in Black Phone, these sort of dreamy sequences are shot in Super 8. And then looking at Winning Time, uh, you know, for anybody who's unfamiliar, it's an HBO show uh, about the uh, the Lakers, uh, you know, sports ball, basketball. And uh as you're watching that show, uh, you'll notice that the quality of the image constantly is is changing based off of what medium they're shooting on for that particular scene. It's it's uh, just such an accomplishment. I've never seen a, a show that manages to capture the the aesthetic look of an era better than that yes. show. Um, yeah. And for you guys, it was one of your biggest projects you've ever had. Like, what was it? 12, uh, 1,200 feet of film for people who are kind of unfamiliar with what that means. Uh, it's about four and a half hours of Super 8 footage. Is that correct? Uh, no, it's a um, lot. It was like 1,500 rolls. 1,500 rolls. Oh, because they're 50-foot rolls. They're not 100. Right. Um, my math was off. Sorry. Okay. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's. 40 or 50 or 60 hours worth of Super 8 film. Yeah. It's a lot. Of, they did a lot of shooting. <laughs> Over the course of two seasons, because I think the show got canceled after the second one, right? Yeah, because yeah, HBO got bought out recently. So yeah. that's part of that. What was it? What was it like working with those cinematographers? Because you clearly, uh, you know, you've done some interviews with them. You clearly have some really just great rapport with with them as you're, I mean, and the other thing is the cinematographers are around my age. I mean, they're in their late 30s, early 40s. They're not people who grew up shooting Super 8 films for family events. They grew up filming, shooting them in film school. So what was it like working with that team to kind of get them ready to to implement that amount of Super 8 into their TV show? I'm sure they never thought that they would do that as is with so many of these things. Um, someone will do something during production, you know, and the creative types, you know, see it in the dailies and like, Oh my God, I love that. You know, I love the way that works. 
and lets the editors like, oh, give me more of that. And and then it feed, feeds back to the production team. And that's these things kind of develop on their own, you know. So sometimes, you know, it lays a turd, you know, you, you they they rent the equipment and, you know, they never even use a frame. You know, they they decide against it. And then other times it, it just grows on them and they realize, oh, this is really I feel connecting us with the era or, you know, what, what they're trying to, to accomplish, you know, and then they start using it more fluently and then, then they start to explore it, you know, and go out, like I say, into areas like sync sound, which, you know, so rare to see somebody, you know, take it that far, but you don't, they don't start out there. They usually just start out with some clips and then, you know, for the trailer. And then sometimes it grows into the show itself. And sometimes, like with this project, it just grows incredibly in terms of uh, having. There's one of the the basketball games uh, in the, the first season that's uh, just just mostly super eight. You know, the entire game and the and the photography of the game is really kind of unique in in the way that it's not like a bunch of steady cam and luma cranes. You know, like hovering over these guys playing basketball. It really feels like the camera's on the court and you're doing something in, you know, they're, they're not even looking at the viewfinder. They're, they're using the camera, you know, and, and the feeling of that footage sometimes is so intimate, you know, like, like the sweat is falling onto the lens kind of thing um, that when you get it right, it, it, it really feels like you're in there. You're, you're in the game itself. Um, so I think it just grew into that. I, um, I don't know that it's, it was, was destined for that thing, but it, it, it wound up being there. <laughs> so they just kept shooting. It, it's such an accomplishment. And I feel like in regards to a, uh, just a document that demonstrates the work that you guys are doing at pro eight millimeter. I mean, that, that show is just a walking example. Um, and, you know, and you talk about how, uh, you know, it's the, the super. It's been used on everything from you know Mariah's Mariah Carey's "All I Want for Christmas Is You" music video '94 to it's featured in Oppenheimer, which is being you know projected on 70 millimeter film in an IMAX when it's finally done. Like it, it's just showing up everywhere, at least in these Hollywood productions, uh, in 2023, 2024, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's because it's um it's got its own value somehow, and and you know we do a lot of work. You know, it's fun to talk about the the celebrity stuff and things like that, but a lot more of it has to do with just more average people who are just interested in. In fact, I have to say, of all the things that that I you know experience, one of the greatest experiences is when somebody will write on their work order. You know, as I'm scanning it, this is my first time ever like holding a camera, right? And you're like, you're putting it on, and you're actually like a little nervous for them because you're like. Oh, it's their first time. Like, is this going to be like? And then, more often than not, it's it, it's which is incredible to me when you're talking about what we're talking about. You're it's a 50 year old camera, you know that that somebody's picked up. It hasn't been used maybe in 20 years. That they're that they're putting this old technology in, and it's that old. It, you know, just the fact that it might work is like beyond anything. It, and then when you see these images that are unique and, and, you know, and just carry the day, you know, like we do a lot of wedding stuff because 
it just emotionally um, just carries the moment of a wedding in such a way that's just so elegant and kind of um, classy and romantic. And like, I, I don't know, you know, you just see a picture of a bride and, and, you know, these, these, the flow of it. And, and you look at the video and you're like, yeah, it's just like everything else that happened that week. And then you look at the super eight of it. You're like, Oh wow. This was like an occasion. It was like, it was something, you know, that, that stood out. Um, and, and you get that feeling off of somebody who never picked up a camera before, you know, it's like, wow, that, that, that has, that speaks to me of how, powerful the medium itself is you know all by itself it's doing the work you're you're pulling the trigger and you're you're presenting it with something but the heavy lifting here creatively is going on actually with the chemical process the way they you know the the film is being exposed to light and stuff like that to result in this classic looking image of something um you know that that's just so powerful to me, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, something that we should maintain and preserve and have for the next generations. And I think Super A will go on because of that, you know, literally forever, because, you know, how few things can do that kind of thing where, where it can just do its thing. You never, you didn't study it in school. You didn't, you know, um, and, and it, it presents you with this amazing new version of, of life. Like, uh, that's pretty powerful. I mean, I'm going to be there to like support it in whatever way it can. And then of course you get people who then want to take it further and, you know, and work with it from that standpoint, but it's got the prior, you know, on its own, it can kind of do it all by itself with, you know, you don't have to put any kind of, ASC skilled driver behind it. You could, you could take your average person who wants to create interesting, you know, wedding videography or, um, you know, passionate stuff about their family and their vacation trips. And, you know, like it just stands out like, wow, this was our, our trip to Yosemite, you know, like I got a million videos of it, but nothing compares to what this, this particular thing did, you know, on that trip amazing I, uh, I i'm really happy you brought up the uh the sort of amateur nature of it because i have uh, just a few more questions for you and, and one relates to that but i you know i remember uh in film school i'd get i'd get all these super eight cameras and i'd go to the thrift store and i'd try to find the next one the next one i remember finding the first one that i got to own that had an intervalometer and for people who are like what on earth is an intervalometer that's the that's the you know super eight traditional film way of saying that I could do a time lapse where I mm -hmm. could say every so many seconds or minutes or whatever it would take a frame and I filmed actually funny enough uh, it was I was in Massachusetts and I filmed a sunset on Kodachrome and to me that still is the most remarkable one of the most remarkable pieces of art I've ever made was yeah. just being able to capture the sunset and knowing this is the angle that I want and this is how it's going to work and. I'm engineering this thing and then it shoots and I get it back in six weeks or whatever it was because I delayed yeah. shipping it and whatever. And just having that moment of seeing this, you know, projected on a white wall, uh, you know, with my little my little projector was like, 
I made something amazing and I, no one will ever be able to capture that sunset in the same way that this strip of Kodachrome did. Right. Yeah. So it's, in, sorry. No, it's, 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 it's kind of perfect in that way. It, it really is. And I think, um, you know, I've, I've heard you talk in interviews about the fact that Super 8 sales and, and what you guys are doing, it seems like the quantity of film that is getting uh, that is getting produced and shot seems to be about the same as it has been. Uh, but you're seeing a lot of new people entering the space where they're doing a lot of interesting things with with, you know, a role here, role here, as opposed to shooting forever. And uh, and I'm curious about uh, two things. One is, uh, well, I'll just break them up into separate things. First is in regards to what Pro 8mm is doing right now, what are the sort of main cornerstones of your company? Uh, you know, what are you guys, what are the main services that you guys offer? And, uh, you know, how does, how do people gain access to that? Well, in order to do it, you need the four pillars. You need the camera, the film, the processing, and the scanning. You know, it's like, Without those four posts, you don't have the medium. So there's got to be some nature of support to cameras. So we're doing a lot with that more and more all the time in terms of like rebuilding, repairing, uh, because there's no new. Um, but it doesn't really phase us that that doesn't exist because the quantity of Super 8 cameras that were manufactured over the years um, I, I calculated one time at like 60 million or something like that. You know, it's like the the quantity of cameras that is out there is just ginormous compared to, you know, the number of people that are actually going to want to pursue something creatively, you know, um, with the medium is, is never going to approach those kind of numbers. Um, so there's plenty of cameras, I feel like for for the next decade, you know, or the next century, really. Um to support yeah but there's some there's issues you know you gotta try to figure out why a lot of them are all failing in one regard and maybe there's a, a repair thing or we do a lot of uh take two cameras and make one camera out of it you know you take the good out of you know because some of them you know just so there's a there's a fair amount of attention to the camera kind of world and and why it's you know what's happening there then the film um it's pretty stable right now we kind of um we still manufacture our own film but kodak decided to make the film and quite honestly we really weren't able to keep up with the demand we would have had to invest a lot more in manufacturing to do that um kodak had all the manufacturing to do it they decided they wanted to do it as long as they do it reasonably um you know let them have at it they already got the machinery to do it Every so often we got to, you know, they'll, they'll come up short. We have to fire back up and, and do something. So we feel secure. I mean, in my early years, it did feel like I was dependent on their existence too much. And so I really felt I needed to be secure with, if they didn't exist, I could still exist, which I feel positive about, you know, as long as film itself exists. I can always make something into Super 8. You know, I got the capacity to do that. So I feel pretty good about the film thing. Um, but but it's kind of stable, you know, in terms of what's happening in film. Nothing's really, you know, they're not coming out with new stock next year or something like that. Um, the processing, you know, uh, their machines, you know, they break. You got to stay up on them and stuff like that. Um but, you know, we're doing good there. And then the scanning. Scanning's 
you know, um, you know, big part of it, you know, moving it from film to digital. There's a lot of options today for scanning. You know, there's home scanning. There's put it all in a box and send it to some guys scanning. There's, there's a lot of different options in scanning. Uh, I still think we have, you know, some of the best ways of doing it. But, you know, it's a highly competitive kind of world out there. Um, the other stuff that I think we just kind of pushing forward is just logistics kind of thing. Like uh, as we shifted from, like you say, a smaller number of people shooting more film to a larger number of people shooting less film, it's created uh, kind of a logistics nightmare, you know, and you're, you're handling a hundred different people's one roll of film. Um, you got to, you got to approach it different. You know, you know, we had a little bit more of a personal approach to customers and new people's names and stuff like that. At one point, uh, today it, it's thankfully we have a, a kind of AI system called Sprocket, you know, where you can integrate into an app and you can put in what you want done and you don't really have to in, in you know, uh, we don't have to tie up a lot of time with personal relationships on, you know, which, we would love to do, but you know, at the numbers, it's impossible to do. So in order to do what we do now, uh, we rely on, uh, you know, that, that kind of logistic support of like an AI program like Sprocket, which basically forces you to make the decisions you have to make to get your film processed and scanned and returned to you. And we have, you know, online, you know, uh, you know, capacity to send it over the internet and stuff like that. So, you know, some of those things are, you know, where we have to put a bunch of time to, to make the future, you know, viable for everyone and keep the cost, you know, down. So we, we really, I don't think we've raised the price of film processing scanning in the last five or seven years, you know, because we've developed efficiencies and we've moved some things. Like, uh, for example, we always color corrected everyone's footage before we, as a function of the scanning. So they always got perfectly color corrected images back. But today we do something called log scanning. So we scan like a flat pass of their footage, which is called the log, um, like, uh, like raw and still photography. And then you take it into, you know, DaVinci or Final Cut or whatever edit program you, and you do the color correcting. And that shifts the, the cost from you having to pay a service for that so you can do it yourself. As a consequence, a lot of people use the logs, you know, as, as you know, so you get these looks and you're like, wow, they really like that flat look <laughs> on that jeans commercial. Like you're not supposed to use the log footage, you know, like as the, you know, you're supposed to color correct it, but you know, like the sprocket and some of that kind of stuff, people just um, sometimes either don't know or they just, they like it. They just think, oh, that looks kind of cool. Is that maybe that's what Super 8 supposed to look like? Flat, you know, images, right? So, you know, we 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 working with those kinds of things, you know, to try to keep the uh, a large population of people happy, um, you know, with the kind of service that we've always offered, but being able to do it, you know, with this great number of people. So, that's amazing. Amazing. Yeah, well, uh, thank you so much for your time. I'm just, you know, you've been, uh, you've, you've co conquered a lot of topics. Is there anything that we haven't co covered that you're kind of curious about, or you want to throw out into the universe before we depart? 
I think the universe is going pretty good. And it's especially in the Super 8 world with you, uh, yep. you know, overseeing it. Um, for anybody who's interested in Pro 8 Millimeter, Phil, where should they uh, where should they hunt you down? Uh, on the web is good. Um, you know, there's hundreds of videos and stuff up there as well through YouTube and Instagram and all that kinds of stuff. Um, you can always pick up the phone. You know, sometimes people do that. Our info at Pro 8, you know, it, it's pretty easy to find. Um, and I hope that it's pretty easy to navigate, you know, yourself, you know, through the process so that you can experience it, um, you know, um, on your own and, and you know, and, and get where you want to get with it, you know, with our help. Awesome. Well, uh, Phil, thanks for all you're doing. Thanks for your time. Uh, all right. I hope you have a great, uh, a great sunny day on the yeah. West Coast. Oh, California. It's always sunny. All right. Have a good one, Phil. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye now. All right. In the immortal words of Phil Vigent, just remember nobody starts out great. It's okay to have a learning process in regards to your creative arts, whether it relates to Super 8 or otherwise. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Phil Vigent. Um, I love hearing from people that find an opportunity and then run with it. I mean, to sit there and devote yourself to an 8mm frame uh, for his company's been around for 50 years. He's been around for most of that. I mean, that's a pretty significant accomplishment and a significant obsession. And I just, I absolutely love it. If you're interested in shooting Super 8 film, if this made you want to pick up a camera and make your own movies, don't hesitate. Please go check out Pro 8mm. Uh, go on YouTube and look up videos how to shoot Super 8. Uh, figure out what cameras get you excited. Figure out what sort of features you want. It's a uh, a pretty cool hobby, and I know that in 2024, uh, where we're currently all living, I'm going to be shooting quite a few roles, and I'm uh, I'm excited to see what I make. Speaking of making things, our next guest coming in uh, in just two weeks on January 31st is Jenny Johnson. Jenny is the owner of Isotope Ice Cream and Desserts uh, and is well known around Western New York uh, for her vegan baking. So uh, if you ever had Misfit Donuts or you had desserts from the Owl House, you're familiar with her work and your stomach was probably all the happier for it. In that conversation, we're going to talk about successes, failures, uh, just moving forward and following your passions, and most importantly, uh, the research and development of vegan baking. So if you are interested, please tune in for episode 14 on January 31st, wherever you can find your podcast. And as always, please, if you like what you hear, uh, write a review, share it with people around you, post it on social media, send smoke signals so that people know that uh, Meditations with Ryan Zlomek is bringing you joy. My hope is that the right people can hear these stories, and the only way it's going to happen is if you uh, find the people. We all do what we can to sort of share this narrative, and uh, you're a part of the process, and I'm just so thankful you're here, and I really appreciate your support. Additionally, you can find the world of Ryan Slomack on Facebook and Instagram. Don't be a stranger. Email meditations at ryanslomack.com if you have any questions or are interested in sponsorship. Otherwise, have a wonderful rest of your day. I'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for everything.